Okay. Hey, hello, everyone. This is Brian. Um, and my co-host is here back from vacation. He's finally can return to the show. Dan is here with us. Hey, guys, it's Dan. Good to be back. Good to be here. Yeah, here we go. Another episode um, where we're going to talk about a piece of art, which talks about art itself. In a way, it's an art generator. Uh, go on. Uh, let's let's wait until we kind of give the. Oh, you mean the game is an art generator? Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah we'll definitely we'll definitely follow that angle. Well, today we're going to be talking about fiasco. Okay, fiasco is. Not a book, not a movie, nor is it even a piece of literature. It is a game. Um, is game art? I don't know. We'll get into that. But Fiasco is a game, regardless. Um, fiasco is... Dan has played this. I have played this game. And um, it's a game about movies. Kind of. It's a game about simulating movies. Um, Dan and I both... This game is sort of like... Um, um, it's in the vein of games of Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, Dan and I are both in some Dungeons and Dragons games. Most people know what Dungeons and Dragons are, so I won't go too long on about it, but uh, role-playing, uh, storytelling, um, someone is... Uh, you're you're inhibiting a character. You're being someone else, and you're role playing that character out. And usually, epic in D and D, you're doing like epic fantasy and fighting dragons, and making friends, and wooing mayors, etc. Um, and you're playing that out, and you're using dice and different things to kind of uh, uh, make the game work. And fiasco, you are. It's a modern setting. And you are simulating movies, a specific type of movie. Um, let me read the back of the box of Fiasco. I think it's got a good description. Fiasco, award-winning game. Uh, inspired by cinematic tales of small-time capers gone disastrously wrong. You'll tell a story about ordinary people with powerful ambition and poor impulse control. Lives and reputations will be lost. Painful wisdom will be gained. And if you're really lucky, you just might end up back where you started. But you probably will not be lucky. Dan, what do you have to say about this game as just an intro to it? It's a game where you and some friends sit around and cooperatively create a story. And you're not just creating a story. I mean, their tagline, right, is... Uh, a game about powerful ambition and poor impulse control. You're creating a story together. And within that process, you're agreeing at some points, if not most points with each other, that the character you're playing will fail to do what they want. And it geniusly prevents even like subconscious levels of competition of like, well, I want my character to succeed and establishes that the goal is for the story to be as interesting and among most groups as funny as possible. 
So it's not really a competition for a specific outcome. It's um, a it's a cooperative game for an interesting plot. Yeah, that is that is a good way to put it, and it and it it, it seeds a lot of things. I think we'll talk about as this podcast goes on. Um, yeah, we played a game together not too long ago, and things definitely went um, went crazy and wrong, or in this case, right. Uh, maybe we'll we'll mention some stuff that happens. So that's the game fiasco. Okay, and fiasco. How does it comment on art? Well, fiasco first of all um, is a simulation of a certain genre of movies. What uh, Fargo, um, Burn After Reading, a couple other ones like that. If you know those two movies, you can probably fill out more of that genre. But those are the only ones I've seen. But like I read, read in the back of, of the box, like a small group of people, like things go disastrously wrong. And we'll talk about that, too. But let's start with. Why do we get to do fiasco is game art now? I'm actually, I've heard this question a lot. And if you're into video games or board games or whatever, you've probably come across this question in some shitty, um, but uh, maybe well-meaning article online. I didn't mean to say shitty. I'm sorry. Some article online talking about it. Um, What do you think, Dan? Is a game art in Ben or as well is Fiasco the game art? I think a game is definitely art. Um, I was going to say it combines art and craft in the same way that, you know, uh, suppose you're baking yeah, from craft. a recipe. There's a certain craft, craft to the technique. However, yeah, now I'm wondering is, if you would ever have kind of one without people, the other. Yeah, craft is what people put against art a lot, right? Yeah. So like, is it art or is it craft? Is a chair art or craft? What do you, what is your, what do you, what is your best definitions for craft as opposed to art? I might say that art is the um, goal of the final form. It is the, the taste that you are att- attempting to accomplish. And then within that, there's the craft of the skill of making the output look like what you wanted. So if I'm a painter and I want, you know, I see my mind's eye, I want this painting then the craft being the techniques of me actually using the paint to make it look that way. And so with games, it's, it's a much more abstract output that we want uh, in terms of player. It, you're trying to craft, I guess all are, you're trying to craft experiences, but in this, you're trying to craft dynamic experiences that are going to happen while you're not there. Though I guess that could always happen with art, but it's 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 one of the focal obvious points of games. So I would definitely say games are an art. Um, some games are even just like interactive books, like God of War, <laughs> so, considered by many to be the greatest game of all time. Um, and it's almost like a book. And then you have things like this, where you create a storyline and then you have, you know, something like Super Smash Brothers where it's a sport. But even that... Uh, you know, has a lot of art decisions within it. 
Yeah, okay. And what what would you say? What about sports or sports art within this definition? Um because there's no yeah. creation. There is sort of, you know, I mean, we could maybe define a creator and or an act of creation in there, but it's certainly different than someone intending a game um, to be played out. Yeah, the the intent levels. So I guess when I say Super Smash Brothers is a sport, I mean, it it um, it's a competition and it's you do the same thing every time. And it's a matter of just increasing your skill at that. Um, versus, uh, you know, RPG or less narrative and more competition. Now, physical sports, yes, so many were invented by, you know, maybe you can trace some to a single person, but in, in the way that they manifest, they are typically just culturally evolved. So it's harder to pinpoint those down into art as much as you can for video games and board games. And I guess maybe that is the difference between a game and a sport, but I, I like how you said um, that the sport is basically a single, let's just say a single task, but a single set of tasks that you just try to get better at. Right. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, maybe you can do, maybe sometimes doing those tasks um, can be poetic, right? You know, <laughs> the, the, the football dance at the end of the touchdown or, you know, even a fun catch or a great tackle. I was about to say, that yeah, has a little bit of flair and poetics into it. Watch a sports fan, like a re- like a really big sports fan of a game, you know, growing up watching my dad, watch basketball with my dad. He's like, that was a fantastic pass. You know, you're a little kid and you're like, wait, yeah. I thought the shots would be the cool part when they score the goal from really far away. But y- you see that the people who are really into it, they see the nuances or, you know, soccer, that was a beautiful kick or, or whatnot. Yeah. The same. That's a good, that's a, um, a good pointer, you know, where we have those descriptors for nature and we have those sort of aesthetic descriptors for art, but we do also have it for uh, sports. So there, you know, there is some commonality somewhere within how we receive them as emotion and be, you know those emotions of beauty or and feelings of joy and stuff they are they do produce similar results uh, so the the idea of them being skills that progress and ideally you just kind of progress linear linearly along this like getting better path well you know if if art is this experimenting with um with things like you said like this like a, in D&D, you're basically, it's a real life simulation where, but you have, but, but the difference is you get to experiment because you don't have the same consequences, but, and you can't really level up literally in that because every experiment is new or it's not an experiment. Yeah. So when you're run into game, like Groundhog Day, right? Okay. We're going to play the same right. narrative over and over and over again, but we're, right. yeah. Or I guess you would just call that a play at a certain point. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then, you know, everyone knows that if you look at the same painting enough, then it becomes, you know, dull to you. And whether there's actually more to dig in or not, you know, you do get that feeling of like, okay, I'm going to move on to a new thing now. Yeah. 
the, the, yeah, the experiment has, you know, once that, once it's no longer an active experiment within your brain, then, you know, it, it's the art doesn't function. It doesn't serve the same purposes within you. So there, there is that difference between sports and art there. And uh, which puts games solely into art, especially specifically a game like fiasco where it, it is, like I said, a simulation of real life you know, through a movie, through a game, except that you really get to experiment with it. And that's kind of the fun, the sandbox of it. Okay. Um, one idea I had is, uh, well, I, I thought about when I was thinking about, okay, is game an art? Obviously this is going to come up. I should think about it. Well, okay. So let's take it back to that craft or that function that, you know, something's, you know, you have craft versus art, but you also have like function versus art, right? So some things like I brought up the, a chair, a chair can be beautiful, but it mainly only serves as a function. You know, uh, you can have an art piece that's a chair as well, but the chair at your dining room table could be beautifully made. And maybe every once in a while that you, it gives you a feeling of joy or something. Well, we can it, even talk about commonality. What is the, what, is, what do you think the most common compliment somebody would give to a chair? Probably not that it's beautiful, that it's comfortable. Just mm-hmm. comment on its function. This chair is really comfy. What are you saying there? I'm saying, so you're talking about the difference between function and, and I guess uh, I'm going to be nice to myself and just limit it to visual aesthetics. Obviously, we're talking a lot more about that, but like, eh, when does, is comfort aesthetics or not? But um. You know, we, we have the art, we have the sport, we have the the function. And a compliment to a chair is typically a compliment that it does its function well, as opposed to going above yeah. and beyond its function, which I guess beauty of the chair, et cetera, would start to fulfill. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think of as well, I think of the the, um, the cave paintings, which are uh, one of my favorite things in the world to look at, right, from from prehistory you know you've got the paintings though they do they find it in many different places where you have the hands right so the hands were dipped in something and put on the cave wall or you have like the kind of nice actually paintings of like buffalo and stuff uh you know for them we that's a fun one because we don't really know so a chair is like oh obviously it serves a function but for that you know it's like okay well it could be um, some sort of a sign of religious experience or or uh, just simple communication from one group or another. It could be just sitting and, and having fun. It could be teaching a baby what things look like, or it could be teaching children or other hunters what things look like, or it could have served any number of functions as well as any number of um, art functions, you know, but uh, uh the one thing that it is, is, is like, it's an, it's abstracted, right? So it's someone thought something in their head or maybe had a feeling or whatever and put it in some form into the physical world. Right. And so that's, that's someone giving uh, like a, an outline of their perception, right? So you get to this cave painting, we get to see that these people have thought, when they think of Buffalo, they think of this, right? 
And that's cool because, you know, and I think that's art and it, it gives people the opportunity to, to say, Hey, look, someone else is here and this is how they think. And it's pretty much kind of like how I think, and I'm not alone. Right. So one of art's big functions maybe is, is, is this putting down of perception. Then I think the key there is the fact that it's abstracted from a source. So a chair is not, I mean, you can't really say that it's and correct me if I'm not thinking it all the way through, but it's certainly not an abstracted thing in the same way a sculpture of a person is right. So the, the person who's making the chair is making the item that they want. And there's no meta levels involved in there. <clears throat> Whereas the person who's sculpting a human is intentionally, it's supposed to be human, except that it's a sculpture. I like that you pointed out just to briefly revisit. Um, I forget the exact words that you use, but this person is like me in some way. And I mean, the word is humanize, right? Um, in a lot of ways. And I was trying to think of examples to really like crystallize that. You know, I was just like, okay, you know, imagine if you looked at Hitler's art, but I guess that's not, we have even better ones. You know, imagine that we're at a alien planet and we see these aliens that look just absolutely ferociously terrifying. Um, and they, and they walk around and they have stone tools and we're really, you know, we're not sure whether they're just straight up an enemy, but then we come across, you know, paintings of theirs, cave paintings of theirs. I'm willing to bet the average person would feel a deep sense of empathy. And what's cool is, you know, we can, we can now play this game in a, in a real way. The oldest cave paintings, according to nature magazine, which is uh, like one of the two biggest scientific journals, uh, Neanderthal cave paintings, those are the oldest ones I believe we found. Uh, or at the very least, what matters is that there are Neanderthal cave paintings. So we literally have an instance where uh, a non-homo sapien, we have every reason to look at that and feel a deep sense of empathy. And to, to we have proof. And I'm using that word very loosely, but that's fine. Uh, that there is an internal experience as opposed to Maybe there is an internal experience to a rock, but it's much less obvious to us. And when we see this act of creation, particularly creation that seems to imply story, that seems to imply a message, um, you can't help but feel a sense of deep empathy, at least more than you would otherwise. It, it becomes, I guess, for lack of a better word. Well, I get, I mean, just, yeah, it becomes humanized. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right on. Um, so fiasco, I think, you know, I mean, it could, there are ways that it's definitely an abstraction. It, it definitely takes that movie genre and ab abstracts it into something. So we get this piece, which is what this person thought this thing looked like, and then he's showing it to you, right? So we get certain things. So this, you know, an intentional abstraction and also an abstraction of social interaction of real life an abstraction of life and and social interaction irl in general life imitates drama it's like, drama okay. imitates life yeah 
So, I mean, I think, you know, and that's a lot of these reasons are why I, 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 of course, I just simply intuited fiasco as art because uh, that's the funner thing to do. And then I thought about it. And yeah, a lot of these reasons are why I'm totally fine with, with, with keeping it on this podcast. And if it wasn't art, then we'll just say, um, you know, fuck it. Fuck the whole disclaimer, I guess. <laughs> we, we're we going to call it art. <laughs> Somebody stop yeah, us. It's it's I guess if you don't yeah. <laughs> right. Um okay. Um have you have you watched any of the movies that like this is based off of? I don't know if you may may or may not have, you may have an idea of what they are or even have I know I mentioned Fargo and Burn After Reading, which are both Cohen brother movies. So who yeah who are most famous maybe for the general audience for no country for old men and the new ballad of Busker Scruggs. So they have an obviously obvious type there. Uh, I don't, I didn't know unless you're just saying that there are correlations. I didn't know that there was actually a one-to-one correlation of fiasco inspirations, but yeah, um, there is. And there's a list somewhere in the instruction book. There's even a list of, and maybe actually we have the second edition and I think the first edition was a little bit more explicit, but I definitely remember reading on a box or a thing. It's like, it's like literally like this movie, this movie, and this movie. But if you go on like the game page on the online or find a Wikipedia or something, it'll list a bunch of movies for you, which aren't the ones I listed today, but are in the same genre. That's cool. Yeah. So I have yeah. the expansion so the packs. Was passionate about it. He was like, Let's do this. I have expansion yeah. packs on their way, but uh, they couldn't get here before Christmas. And I wanted to play this game with my family for Christmas um, after playing it with you. And uh, the basic box that I have, there's and, and we can go more into detail at one point about like the how the game works. But in turn, let's say that it has, you know, different drivers of themes to 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 help move along the story. I have Dragon Slayers. Which itself, you know, that's a whole genre, right? Like, you know, but when I did that, you know, we were going to, well, it got ridiculous as the game does. But Dragon Slayers, you can imagine it kind of a Dungeons and Dragons. There's wizards, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I have this Poppleton Mall, which I haven't actually played yet. So I'll leave that as a fun mystery. But it's got a dollar bill on the front of it. But then it's got Tales from Suburb- Suburbia. And that I just straight up thought of Desperate Housewives and all of the equivalents, for lack of a better word. That's the one we. And I think that's probably the funnest one. I had, like I said, I haven't played all three, but uh, just from base principles, it seems like that is the most interesting choice of the three. Yeah, which is funny because that's basically all of these movies are going to take place in that. That like uh, middle class, middle class, like, um, you know, suburbia, not always suburbia, but like Fargo is obviously a small town in North Dakota, but it's definitely a middle class. The guy is literally, the main character is literally a salesman. So, or a car salesman, I mean. Well, and Fargo has that interesting so it's funny that you vibe to it of casual, casualness with non-casual events happening around them. Yeah, it's kind of, I guess, what, a comment on um, apathy. Yeah, well said. I mean, yeah, the guy gets the call 
and I don't remember the specifics, but you know, he gets a call and it's something like, you know, hey, we found a dead body or whatever. And he's like, Oh geez. <laughs> that was my buddy's <laughs> biggest selling point when he was getting me to watch the movie. He's like, This is why this movie's great. Yeah. Yeah, well, okay, so let's we can talk about Fargo a little bit because that's the one I actually most recently have seen, and I know you've seen. So, but in this movie genre, like I said, I've already mentioned it. You have like just things go wrong, um, and it's not like things go. It's not like a misadventure where things go wrong and it's it's fun and because but the person is kind of just trudging along anyway, and maybe they're sour and maybe they're a goofball. It's not like that. It's like mostly like shitty people get into shitty situations right and so in 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 fargo there uh was the main character who gets you know i don't know i'm trying to think of the phone call you mentioned i guess it doesn't matter but uh in this one the main character sets up to kill his wife or get his wife kidnapped for, so he can get a ransom for money. He wants to um, get into this investment deal in this shady way so he can get some money. And then he also got a loan from a bank by pretending he owned a bunch of cars in his car salesman lot. That's kind of the prompt. And then the whole thing just goes to shit from there. People die. His wife gets killed and <laughs> because the ransom, ransom people uh, mess it up. And the bank finds out about his car and his and he gets um, his uh, other deal doesn't go through. And, and things just go poor. As you say that, it reminds me of Macbeth. We don't have to go into that right now, but I'm going to plant that seed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. OK. Yeah. I'm going to be thinking about that because there's definitely some some vibes that are similar. I think. um I think I think for me when I was watching this and I I did mention to you this when we were texting back and forth but to me the biggest the biggest thing was like you know yes we're watching characters just get shit on but it is it's because of dishonesty and lack of morals and and stuff like that it's you know it's it's not like watch the good guy get it's not like a deconstruction of like heroes yeah. Right, it's a deacon. It's a a showing of the anti, or not even the. It's the not bad a guy. oh bad things just happened. It it has internal logic, and and we have different ways. Like so, we have you know Aristotle. He's this Greek guy for people who haven't heard of him. Um, but we have these three Greek tragedians: uh, Aeschylus, uh, Sophocles, and Euripides. And you guys probably read Antigone by Sophocles and you probably read Medea by Euripides in high school. Um, you probably didn't read Aeschylus, but he's the guy he's the, he's a little bit before Sophocles. They're all like within a single generation though. But anyways, so Aristotle writes about it and he likes Sophocles the best because Sophocles is, and again, these are tragedies, tragedians, right? These weren't comedies. Uh, he, he liked that Sophocles has had internal logic as opposed to deus ex machina, in this time period is where we get that term, right? Things just show up, you know, the gods show up and then just that magically changes things. It, the outcomes are the result of character decisions versus just randomness adding. And things become much more interesting and much more, 
I feel like you can learn a lot more from things. You can take things home more in art when it's the actual character's own consequences. And I guess that might be the difference between art that is just trying to make a point about the world. So, you, you know, you have a good person and things bad happen to them because of things outside their circumstances. And then you're criticizing those things, right? Maybe some war tears them apart or whatever. Um, and then situations like this, like you said, they're middle class and they're not poorly off. And so they're kind of in this neutral position. And then it is their actions that they didn't have to take that puts them in a worse position. Yeah. And, and uh, as I was kind of thinking about fiasco stuff, it really made me come around to the genre, though I do have some stuff to talk about, which, which I don't like so much, but you know, it's, I'm not usually for the, uh, everyone loses and uh, there's no hero sort of story. Um, as if you listen to this podcast, you probably know, but this one that, like you said, it really, do, it really is important that we can draw lines, you know, in actually we're talking about D and D and, 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 you know, I got pushed before and like, okay, when, why, why did you kill this person? Or this person was new, you know? Um, oh, I'm sorry. As a, in D and D there's something called a, a the, the dungeon master, which <laughs> I wish I could just say DM because dungeon master is like, it's, it's silly in such a great way. Uh, it makes me, it makes me just the right amount. You're What's the that? PlayStation. You're the Xbox. You're the team when you're the dungeon yeah. Master. You're the world. You set up the story. So like, if the characters are playing in a story, then sometimes you can be like, well, that doesn't work because etc. So you kind of just run things a little bit. Um, you make things work and make sure every everyone's going and having fun. Um, but you know, and sometimes characters die because they do in stories, and then you know you as the person who's setting that up has to be like, okay, they died because of this reason and this reason. And I found that the most satisfying deaths and the deaths that make the most sense to me when it logically, and I think that are the most, one, the most fun and two, the most helpful are ones where the player can track where he, where he went wrong. And so he can say, okay, I, Next time I play Dungeons and next time I play a Dungeons and Dragons, I might not play a character which opens every single door in a dungeon and just runs inside, right? Because that got me killed. As opposed to the guy who opens one you know, door, walks in, happens to roll a one out of on a twenty sided dice or die, uh, and immediately dies. Yeah, like that's, that's exactly fine. right. And as a DM, you know, you have that first that person who does it, and that might happen on accident. And but you know. Honestly, there's, I don't think there should be a debt, like in my, in my rules that I've written for myself that I, you know, if I was pretending to follow them strictly, I would say, well, that person, person shouldn't die. Let's give him a little leeway, but now he's learned a valuable lesson. So he can take that. And maybe if he does it again, well, there's your death, right? And, you know, if the dice give him the, 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 you know, the dice are there for narrative effect and sometimes a death is narrative effect but if a death is going to be caused by the dice it has to be narrative effect otherwise there's no point in using the dice right so it has to be an epic death there it has to be like you know if it's not narrative it's not don't even use the dice anyway so it's sort of like that it, it's really really important i think that we can see in this movie is in let's just stick to Fargo and there's other ones. A uh, burn after reading is another one where 
I shit, just it's the same kind of idea. But we can specifically see we could count on our hands the number of lies. They're not trying to hide it. Lies and and maneuvers and dishonest tactics that are made. And yeah, I I I, I like that you said that. I think that's very important. It's 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 kind of a redemptive redemption to this genre. So fiasco sets this genre up. And it and I actually kind of have in my mind that the two things we just talked about there, which is one kind of the dishonesty and the non-virtue, and two, the fact that bad things happen because of that are set up mechanically within the game. Now, a game, let me let me I guess let me say that a game, if a game were to comment on something, it would have to do it by the mechanisms, I guess. So like um uh Let's see. Can I shoehorn Monopoly in here somewhere? I mean, yeah. I mean, what is what choices does Monopoly give the player other than buy or sell? Right? Because the dice are just random. The player lands on a square, and then mm-hmm. they decide to buy it or not to buy it. Right. Uh in so in fiasco the mechanics what we have a couple decks of cards you were naming off a few but there's really those what we have um uh ones that set up that uh theme and that location let's just call it location although it's kind of more all-encompassing than that but location yeah the setting right the setting that you're playing at um, and then you have the deck, which is called the engine deck. And the engine deck uh, gives out some prompts, but it also has um, some cards, which let's maybe we should well, let's go into. So the, the engine deck, okay, this is where the meat of the game is. So the engine deck, is, as far as I see, it has two main types of cards. If we take out these aftermath cards, kind of just forget about them. We have the cards that at the beginning of the game um, set up relationships and stuff between the characters. I think those are technically in the theme so deck each- rather than the engine deck, but that doesn't really matter. Um, I think those are the okay, biggest- it doesn't matter. I was just I was just using that as a setup yeah. to talk about it anyway. Yeah, so. the relationship cards, I think, are the, the, so, key, but, the key start. Yeah. So at the beginning of the game, everyone um, sets up uh, these, takes a card, or chooses a card, rather, out of just a couple of them in their hand, and puts it between two people, and this is some sort of relationship. Dan, do you have some I laying do. around so or I'm, something? I'll, I'll, give, I'll give just a few examples. So, So here's one from the um the dragon slayer set so you know it has adventure to give you like a quick category and then it's master and defeated foe turned into servant and i picked that one on purpose um to talk about later and then um so so you can see how that fits that set and setting right you have a master and defeated foe turned into servant and notice like brian said you play this in between two people this doesn't say which one's which between those people, which one's the master and which one's the defeated foe turned into a servant. Um, and then we have, so from the uh, suburbia one, 
we have one where it's work oriented and you are business rivals in a dying industry. And then you have, and I'm trying to pick ones from different um, scopes, I guess we can say. And then another one, family, parent and stepchild. So, so you can see how you have a decent amount of license. Like one of these, there's clearly a power dynamic, but it's not necessarily said which one of those people is the master and servant. One, we have equals, business rivals, right? And then in, in, antagonistically, and then one, we have family, parent and stepchild, which is a power dynamic, but not the same kind of power dynamic, right? Because there's mutual interest, we assume. It could end up being that the parent's a terrible parent, but probably will be. But yeah. Probably will be. In our game, I think the kids, well, everyone was terrible. Let's just assume it was terrible. <laughs> That's is how it happens, I guess. I mean, plot requires problem, right? Or else it's just a visualization, just observing something. Right. Well, yeah, getting back to that, having a thing that is uh, observably yeah. solvable again. Um, yeah, those are the, the cards and those get set up. Okay, and so these give us our like, these are the opportunities, right? This is where, um, that's how I see it anyway. So this is like, okay, you know, business rivals is an easy one to point to with this idea, but this is our my opportunity to either be a good or a bad guy with my business rival and, or the master and slave relationship, right? This is the opportunity the game sets it up. In terms of setup, listener, that way you can like totally visualize it. You're playing this game with Brian and I, and uh, Brian and me, pardon me. Um, and you have, you know, let's just do the business rivals because that's the first one you said. You have this relationship card in your hand. You would play that between Brian and me. Um, and thus, we would be work rivals or business rivals. Right. So, so you are, you decide what our relationship is and now we work on it together. And I guess like we could protest, but that would not be very interesting or fun to do. It's, it's a lot more fun when the game does not have what you would expect. It's a lot more interesting when you're don't give, you're not given a relationship or the relationships do not match a preconceived story that you have in mind. It's better when there's, when you don't have a story already in your mind that you're acting out, but when you're co collaboratively creating one. Yep. And that's what the game, you know, if you can imagine that, that's what it looks like on the table and that's what everyone's doing. Um, if there's the other deck. Okay. So what happens is, then we play out scenes and I don't want to describe too much about how this, how the scenes are started or anything, but basically um, you play out those relationships. So there's going to be a point where you're going to be the mass. Someone is going to be the master and someone is going to be the slave or the, the beaten hero. And there you're going to have to role play back and forth. And the other people in the table are also in the scenes. They can be side characters or they, their own characters can actually have entered that scene. And so you play a scene out. Um, and as 
as this you go around the table, the scenes connect and you eventually you're building a story and then you're building scenes based on the story. Yes. But there's also these cards. Now, this is the engine deck for sure. And they say the word negative or positive, and that's it. They're red and blue. There are some words on the back that are like for point scoring and stuff. Not that you win or lose, but just on how positive or how negative. But these are positive and negative. And this is probably one of the more smart pieces of this game, right? So there's not much to this game. This is probably the mechanic besides the role playing which is obviously a large mechanic, but is the seeding of these positive and negative cards. At some point during the role play, the rest of the, the people who aren't the main actors in this scene, the two people, or even the one person, I guess, that started the scene, they're going to decide to put a positive or a negative card down and whichever one happens, they have to conclude the scene thusly. So if they if we put a positive card down, it has to go well for that character. If we put a negative card down, it has to go poorly for that character. Um, and there's a lot to be said about that. The coolest thing that I kind of really enjoyed about this is that, so if you ever played a big giant war game, right? So think risk time a thousand, right? Um, where you're you're simulating war scenarios, there's a lot of dice rolling. And you're rolling dice for lots and lots of dice rolling for armies and for supplies and reinforcements and weather and all these things. Obviously combat. But one option that some games have is to instead put a deck in. And this deck has like maybe 50. If it's instead of like on every five and six, you shoot the team, other you shoot your, uh, your the opposing team, the opposing army. And instead of that, there will be 20% of the cards will be hits or, you know, more than 20%. But um, so what's cool about that, and it's the same thing in this book, is that you can't get skunked. Now, Bad things can happen at the wrong time, but you know at some point you're going to shoot the other army, right? You're not, you, you're not going to roll ones for the entirety of the game. Not that you ever would, but, you know, you could have play a game where there's a higher percentage of fails. In the game with that replaces the dice with a deck of cards, there's an equal amount of fails and successes every game. You just have to... Uh, um, pay attention. You get to pay attention to them more, and so build your strategy around them as you see them come up. This deck is like that. Yes, your character may have some positive mo- no- moments, but eventually, these those positive cards, as we found out halfway through our game, we were like, "Oh shit, we've been it's been going too well. We're out of Which positive cards." And then, yeah, there's only potentially does not give you enough positive cards for them all to be positive. Right. And I mean, this goes right along with our um, being able to 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 notice the dishonesty and let's just say lying. The Fargo movie has a lot of lying. So noticing lying and then seeing the negative outcomes from it. And it's kind of a really nice integrated manifestation of a moral lesson where it's, look, if you lie, buddy that negative card is going to come up 
right? So we with these since we since the game prompts us to be disaster people and to be liars and to be dishonest, the game also says, okay, but you will you can't. There's no rolling a six every single time. Eventually, this will catch up with you. And you just um, you end up requiring more and more very specific things to get you out of trouble as you lie more. And just in terms of probability, you're less and less likely to get those specific things. So there's a nice organic result just from logic itself that uh, leads to that. Yeah, and uh, what about what about these mechanics? Anything that stick out to you, just generally, or 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 as they comment on what we've already talked about, or I think the need the need cards are useful, um, because so after you go at the beginning of the game, listeners, you know you you played that relationship card on me and Brian where we are business rivals in a dying industry, right? But then you could also play. You can play a new card, a location card, or an object. Now, object and location are pretty self-explanatory, but the need ones, I think, are the most interesting to drive the game. They don't drive the game that much compared to what you might think. It's not like you have to stick to them, but they're you fall back on them. But you could put on up, you could put a need card to get laid by your best friend. And then it's like, okay, well, who's our best friend? And then, like, we discuss, like, what if what if it's each other? And so we're business rivals, and there's irony there. Or you could put to get even with a local drug dealer as a need. And again, you're not playing this on a person. You're playing this on a relationship. So you can see how two totally different things. You could play to get even with a local drug dealer on two business rivals. And boom, they're rivals, but they have to work together for this thing. So you're setting up contrast. So when you set up contrast, you're going to create more story. And... The cool thing about this game, and at first I was disappointed, but but then I saw why. You can't, so typically you have five players. You can't have two need cards next to each other. So you end up with a maximum of two need cards within a given game. And so not everybody's going to be given a specific need, uh, but you're going to have at least two if you're playing with five people, which is the max. And... I think it's cool how it drives that because now your character has something to do and that kind of inspires them to, I guess, be, if not dishonest, then at least manipulative. But everyone knows that they're being manipulative and a lot of times it's more funny to go with it. Kind of like what, what Brian said with the positive and negative outcomes. Sometimes it's more interesting to play negative on yourself. Do you want to talk at all about, Brian, do you want to talk at all about I guess I'm, I'm bringing it up anyways, but how you choose to either set up the scene or resolve the scene. Cause I think that's a really cool mechanic. Well, okay. Yeah. I would like to talk about it. I just didn't know how to talk about it with, while keeping it clean because it's one of the more kind of obtuse things to understand about it, but go for so, it. So listeners. So, you know, Brian talked about scenes and we don't necessarily need to go into all the mechanics, but a scene is focused on a person. So, you know, we're sitting around the table. So, you know, we, we would start with you and it's your scene and we've played cards on you for your relationship with people 
let's say that I've decided that you are a parent and stepchild with Brian. And you guys have already decided who's the parent, who's the stepchild. We'll say you're the parent, Brian's the stepchild. And so scene starts with you and you get two choices uh, for the, for the first scene. You get to decide, Hey, everyone else playing the game, you set up the scene. Like you say, what is going on? And then action, how we start. And then halfway through, we all stop and we say, does it look like your character, whoever the scene spotlight is in this case, you, does it look like things are going in the way that your character wants them to go or not wants them to go? And again, this is where it becomes cool. Cause it's not necessarily, it's, it's not a competition of, of your character succeeding. It's about the most interesting thing. So a lot of times it's more fun for your character to not have the things that they're trying to do succeed. You know, it's always more fun to play the villain in this game. It's basically always going to be a comedy of errors, but uh, so you can pick how, how to set it up. Then halfway through we stop and we say, okay, does it look like this is going to go well or not go well? So if you picked for us to set up the scene, then after that halfway through point where we decide positive or negative, you get to decide how you want the scene to end. And then we acted out to arrive to that ending point. So we all agreed already of how that scene is going to end. And then we get to act out how it gets there. And then the other option you have is you tell you say, okay, I want to set up the scene. And then you get to say how the scene starts. And and then there's a lot of cool creative license because both could do it, but you know, you could do something like actually the scene starts as a prequel to the previous scene. And so, you know, two years ago, blah, blah, blah. Or you can, you know, I don't want to make this too complicated, but you set up the scene. We act out the scene halfway through. Then everyone else decides how the scene's going to end. And then we act it out there. And that's really cool because you have like a, the group creates a starting point and an ending point, but the same people never create both. It's always one group creates a start and you create the end or vice versa. And then you get this play in between. I mean, literally a, a play. And what's nice about the themes is, you know, not everybody's necessarily that good at improv, but it uses such common cultural concepts that when in doubt, you can kind of know what the archetype, what the archetypal choice to make would be, you know, or, or, or even what the ironic choice would be for that archetype. Right. Well, some, yeah, I mean, intentionally you'll be making that choice a lot of the times. I mean, at the end of our game, it got in, in, I wonder how much games of fiasco we could eventually get in because we went straight to the to Greek gods, right? And or you know, made up ones, but uh, you know, it turned the most epic you could get. Like, you know, we went from suburbia to like basically hell and and you know, returning returning from life at gods and and all this sort of stuff. Um but I forgot where I was going, but it, it just, it just dawns on me that I don't know how much we could actually pay. Cause w- would it end there? Every, Cause would it end there every time? Because the irony is so interesting, right? Because it's, it's, it's so fun to play around with the archetype that, um, you know, you, you wade through them all until you eventually get to the base metaphors 
the base archetypes, you know, that a lot of our literature and art is based on. That would be interesting to, to try out. That, that would be really interesting to, to play around with. I mean, the, the second one that I did with, now <laughs> we didn't get to act two because a few people, and I am not one of them, but a few people had a little bit too much to drink and just could not focus. <laughs> uh, no, you were probably just relaxed, right? <laughs> they, they, it, it, look, listeners, you would have thought they were, they looked really relaxed, but um, <laughs> they wanted to, they just could not focus. So we had to switch games. But um, we basically kind of wrapped up the story before even getting in the second act, just, you know, going two scenes each person. And it ends up being, okay, the chaos god shows up, which, and it, it kind of set it up that people worshiped a specific god, but. But it's interesting. That you so God, you're saying God showed up in your game as well? Um, yeah. However, it also started. No, none of the players were actually the God, but you know, it starts off as like you know, two people worship, you know, a forbidden evil God, and then one person had a, you know, statue up to that God. You know, so it, it set itself up. Mm-hmm. Oh, like as a yeah. prompt, because you were doing the dragon yep. slayers. I see. Yeah. Still, the game's in on it. It knows. Yeah, it knows those base archetypes. I like I said, I haven't played the Poppleton Mall, but the the cover is a dollar bill, but the you know instead of a face in the middle, it's a pentagram. It's a pentagram. Yeah. I just noticed that. That's it's hilarious. Yeah. It would be interesting um, to challenge and go the other way. It's like let's all start as gods and then see what happens. It become yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, we're not actually gods. Yeah. We just, you know, I happen to be really good at chess, and I think I'm the god of chess, but I'm not. Well, that may have, you know, ours did have lots of god play, but it also may have been, you know, the classic like we woke up in a insane, insane asylum because yeah. it very much played out in that way. And I, I hate to. I hate, okay, I hate to like keep referencing our games and not talking about it, but honestly, some of it was very inappropriate and something I would never talk about in public. Um, but it wasn't all that bad. Most of it was fine, but there was definitely well, And stuff. that's also something worth, worth bringing up because the game has a mechanic. You know, you have like a little game board where you just like put the cards, positive, negative, but then, you know, in yellow, the human... The human eye sees yellow the best because, you know, the sun is yellow. Um, and it says, let's not. And anyone can tap that at any given time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's a cool mechanic because these things can kind of spin wildly without even malice on anyone's part. And then if somebody touches the let's not, now we have like boundary conditions, which are useful. and And it allows people to play where maybe their sense of humor is not the same as other people's but but people can find common ground but uh yeah yeah. and maybe it'll maybe it'll come up on a different podcast in the future but you know the idea of of consent or more specifically building your social circle you know the magic circle you're sitting in is a very important one in these role-playing games and it's a very interesting conversation to have which extends uh, it's, it's meanings and problems and answers into real life big time. 
I mean, yeah, it's essentially an improv communal game, and it's very hard to to improv with if people aren't comfortable with each other. In fact, you know, if you ever go to an improv class, listener, or those who have, half of what you're doing are just games that loosen you up between people. I actually want to real quick. So we talked about Fargo. I I think we can also talk about the show. It's always sunny in Philadelphia uh, because it has a similar <laughs> structure and it has a cool way out of that structure. Um, it has, it's a game of, or <laughs> it's always sunny is a show about bad people. Right. But the way that they are bad is that they are selfish, right? They're, they're selfish and they're, um, they take turns being dumb. Sometimes the character's dumb one episode, sometimes they're not. But the show makes it work. And so the question is, okay, well, how can you have multiple episodes if things fall apart for them at the end of every episode? Because uh, they'll make bad things happen to people around them. How are there not consequences? The show gets away with that by having in the second season, Danny DeVito, who I believe came to the writers of the show after the first season asked to be part of the show. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's actually the case. He plays a character and his character is just filthy rich, but he just, he, he lives in a shitty apartment with another character and just, he just wants to live that way. And so the deus ex machina that they have allows, you know, an episode that ends in total chaos for everything. Why they can have another episode restart is because he's just filthy rich and just pays off all their problems. And so every episode of it's always sunny after I guess maybe the first season, maybe even in that it starts with a scenario and then just people are super selfish and ridiculous. And then it ends in chaos and that's the formula. And that show I believe has gone on twice as long as friends did. Yeah, it's, yeah. And it's a great, great example of like that show is well built and, and I'm sure there are things you could find, but for the most part, random things aren't happening to these people. They're just people are being angry at them most of the time, and and they're having to pay for their cons. Their uh, the they have to pay the consequences for what they do, and that's where the juice of the story comes in. And that is, listeners, I I like don't watch TV ever, but that is a specific show that I will watch over and over and over, and if I want to show somebody the new episodes, I always try to make a point to show them an episode where, you know, the gang, the, the, the main cast who's in all the episodes, the main characters are in a situation where there are also, I guess we could say straight men. There are people who are not in the gang and that contrast makes it so great because you get to see the extremity of how ridiculous it is. Cause if you only see them within that context, doesn't it's not as obvious how ridiculous it is and so in games like dnd and games like fiasco like so in fiasco you can have characters who aren't just the guys you're playing so suppose we're doing a scene and brian is what i say earlier uh the stepchild of somebody but also my business rival maybe he's like a kid genius right so you can see how like boom like there we go like we could discuss this to figure out this this trope um and suppose uh, he's, you know, building some machine. I could be like, if it, it, it seems about him and my character's not there, I could just jump in 
being like, uh, boss, I don't see how we would do blah, blah, blah. And, and that kind of organically happens. People have, uh, for lack of a better word, NPCs or, or non-main character players show up. And then the contrast between that's really interesting. And it's always, it always seems to be the most interesting when the extra characters act rather normally than the than the main characters. And the same thing happens in D&D. Right. Yeah, and the, the GM always has to play the straight man, right? I mean, every once in a while you get to throw someone in there, um, but uh, yeah, to be... To, <laughs> what that mostly does is cause the... Uh, uh, the players to outshine, <laughs> outshine the craziness. Usually by taking that crazy person on. Anyway, yeah. Right. So it's like if we can't beat if we can't be the craziest, we will incorporate this man into our this NPC into our party. It's really how that usually goes. But you can imagine, listeners. You know, if you're playing a video game. And you have this crazy side character that you come across, and then you just grab him and just have a way to have him follow you around in the in the video game. Right. Which some game some games will do, and and a lot of games give different. They're exploring more with. You know, we have Aladdin with Abu. We have Maui with his tattoo. We have Hercules and Pegasus, right? Just going off like common Disney movies. Um, we have, um, and, and and we can even see this outside of um, these more extreme ones. I mean, we have Hamlet and the ghost of his father, right? We have Socrates and the doubting demon in his head. We have these side characters that, as characters seem like they're their own thing, but a lot of times they, they are meant to reflect the main characters emotions or to at least give perspective on those. Yeah. It, I mean, we're, we're right back at the same thing. I keep repeating, which is the, so if the opportunity to figure out, what went wrong or what is going wrong. Now, the example you just gave there kind of broadens it to just being able to figure out lots of different facets of, of the main characters. And in the case of, you know, Hercules and Pegasus, it's not always about what Hercules has done wrong. It's about all of his emotions being mirrored. But going back to It's All Sunny, the, as you were saying, the straight man, you know, it's, it goes along with what we were saying about knowing when a how your character, why your character died in D and D or why the guy in Fargo had all the bad stuff happen to him because we can see the lies he made. And in it's all sunny. The straight men, you know, they show us exactly why, how the linear path of what all this shit, why all this bad stuff happens to them. You know, it, it's something for their dishonesty and, and, um, lack of code to bounce off of, right? It reflects it. It shines a light on it. It, it it's almost and a that, fourth wall breaking. Not necessarily quite, but it's almost a hey. Remember that this isn't the norm. Because if we watch a movie yeah. about wizards, right? We're like, okay, yeah, magic's the norm, right? But 
you know, imagine we're watching a movie about wizards and suddenly there's a non-wizard. Well, that's called Discworld and it's a book. <laughs> Where, well, yeah. hey, I bet I bet your movie about wizard has like a kid who is learning who hasn't quite mastered okay. it yet or the guy who is who is an outcast, right? Who hasn't gotten it. I bet your magic or movie has that. You have somebody who lives a simple life in the Shire and they don't know about all this magic and all this politics and they're thrust into yeah. a situation with the fellowship of the ring you know what i mean you have the hobbits for a reason right and this kind of does harken back to when i talked about how you know sports are you talked about sports are the leveling and and art is the experiment is like an active experimenting and you can't level you can get better at experimenting but at each individual experiment is a thing in its own and you can't get better at it and if it's repeated, it's just a new experiment. You can put it into a set of those experiments were similar, but you know it's not. Get, there's no getting better at. Um, so this noticing this type of like thing emerge in fiasco and all these other type things like that, and basically all other art we've already mentioned as well. Um, you know, it, it sets it up for experiment, right? So you're you you can take guesses at what's going to happen. And there's the straight man to help you out. Right. There's a piece of information, a piece of data and, and what maybe the data is going towards your guess, or maybe the, the, um, the straight man is, uh, a course correction or like, okay, so this is, what did you guess? Now here's the answer sort of thing. But yeah, it, it does, it does kind of manifest that idea of like art being, um, a constant experiment and fiasco a social experiment and yeah <clears throat> i can't decide if fiasco is a game where it sits on the extremes of where it is most interesting when nobody knows each other and when everyone knows each other really well um or if it just relays itself but my thought process previously was the game works if you have at least two different groups i i think the game's probably most fun when you have one group playing that all know each other really well um but that might get stale and i think it's most useful when you have two groups that know each other internally you know two two people that know each other well three people that know each other well and then maybe there's like one mutual friend between the two you know like maybe one of the three knows one of the two um etc and then you get all this 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 input information but just the replayability and the way that you get to get to know somebody but you also there's an extreme bonding from this game that isn't that i have not seen from other tip i've seen it from dnd but dnd takes a lot longer right uh, listeners dnd you probably play for like four to five hours at a time and you probably do that for like six months to play a quote unquote game <laughs> to, to finish that fiasco lasts maybe two and a half hours maybe three and a half hours if you guys are really have really get into it um but you, you come out with that lore and that shared story that you all experienced and that's a bonding mechanism that's i think very unique and one of the most powerful ones there are you always can reference the story and especially in this one, you all made the story together. 
Well, yeah, that brings us back to, once again, the other part of the definition of art, which I brought up, which is the, you know, the being able to show someone or, or being even more being able to see that there's something else that there's, it's, it's a shared thing you have. Right. And this is what art gives us. And it's what, it's why fiasco works so well as a piece of art is because of what you just said. I think that shared story, right. The thing that we do together. Um, and when we, when I give my, here's what it is. When I give my thing and then this other thing comes from someone else, it fits together and it makes sense. You know, it produces this thing we call fun and it, it shows us that, uh, that they are there, that there's community, that we're together, um, that I'm not alone. I mean, it, it's almost proof that you're not, right? Because there's a thing that you are forced to give your input on because you are either setting up the scene or resolving the scene. So you're never going to be a bystander in what happens even if you're just quiet while things happen. Um, and there is a, and, and so your input is uniquely irreplaceable to what happens. And that's the case for every single person in the game. And so it, it is designed in such a way that it is foolproof that everybody involved is directly responsible for everything that happens, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I don't know. I got Let's see. There's one more thing I thought about, which is I think I can let I, I I'll just say that without any disclaimers and you know which I could have, and I'll just leave them out. But I'll say that fiasco is an improvement upon the genre. Um, if we take the movie genre and then this game at to be in the same set, I think the fiasco wins out. So that the the thing with the movies is the the fact that people get in shitty situations is as we talked about with fiasco when we didn't want to talk about our games because of the absurdness like violence and exploitation and sexuality naughty stuff is going to be an excess which is you know whether that's good or not um there is a sort of uh aesthetic there that might might draw people away from like the idea that these people are actually doing bad shit and but look at the things they're doing are cool in fargo the one guy chops the dude's head and then puts him through a wood chipper which is kind of cool so it, you know it might draw you away from that but the if that makes sense right so the aesthetic can kind of uh, maybe now it doesn't always i'm just saying it could right it could maybe draw you away from the fact that these people actually got into these situations which look aesthetically cool with the violence and um are fun with the sex and stuff because they were so shitty not to say that those situations are cool but that they look cool so you know hopefully listener you understand what i'm the difference there like of course you don't want to be in that in hell but you want to read dante going through hell you know it's and uh, you don't want to be in the fire you want to watch fire and then the fire makes you feel certain ways anyway the game puts you in as that person so there is no mistaking every time i had my character do a bad thing that i you know i wouldn't normally do like it was very obvious like there is no like oh this is actually a cool thing right there's no putting you in there and um making you come up with 
come up with the things, the bad things, which might happen to your character really just kind of, it's a, it puts you, um, it makes it real, right? It's, it, it, yeah, it's right. It turns it from watching, um, as an aesthetic piece of art, which, you know, has an aesthetic sense of its own, which works on you outside of the message, um, into an agent, right? And there, you don't, the aesthetic sense of like image and, you know, excitement is almost gone in lieu of you making decisions. That's the exciting part. The exciting part is you get to decide and you get to play as opposed to the exciting part being you being a bystander. Which is, yeah, you, thank you for that word. That that word it made me feel better. I kind of concluded it right there where Fiasco sort of improves upon it by giving you the ability to be in and it. It's not just more visceral for you, but like you being the person, you know, the, the first person perspective of the game. But another way that I, I like that you brought, because I, I hadn't even thought about the comparison between the movies and, and this and that set of whatever we want to call it. But also the mechanics of the game specializes the humor, the interests, the background, the references. I mean, we made a bunch of references to this one YouTube video that we watched in the most recent game that I played. Um, and it, it specializes it towards the group. And if the sense of humor is going in a way that one person doesn't like it, boom, let's not. That's what that card is. That's what that you tap that. And then people recalibrate. Um, and you can just tell by looking at each other. And if one person's not laughing, just fundamentally less interesting if not everyone's laughing. And yeah. it, it tailors it. That's the word I was looking for. It tailors it to the preferences and the irony and the perspectives of the people playing. Mm hmm. And, you know, sometimes that card is not even needed. That card that says, I don't want to go there or whatever. I mean, it's pretty easy to tell in a social situation. For most, for, I'm sure not everyone, but for most people, it's pretty simple to tell when someone is being um, withdrawn and, and isn't enjoying a certain And the subject. game limits itself to five people. You, you can't play with more than five people, which is, seems, seems like a bummer if you have more than five people, but it's actually very brilliant because it keeps issues like that from happening, keeps it small enough that it's realistic. Cause if it gets too big, people are just going to yeah. be talking over people are going to get bored. And then again, those relationship cards, the fact that you, you know each other at least well enough to be playing this game together. Like I was playing with my romantic interests uh, the last time I played and, you know, somebody could have played, you know, lovers on us as our relationship. But that wouldn't have been as interesting, right? So so what did my... I think it was my brother. What did he play on us for our relationship? The master and defeated foe turned into servant. Because he knew that would create a certain sense of... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, drama. drama. Exactly. That's the perfect word. I was thinking like angst, but angst sounds like it's bad. And I wasn't going for that. But yeah, it... Yeah, it's drama. Well, it's it's yeah, it's drama as in the sense of yes, it's play and drama, but also like yeah, drama. Like we're gonna watch The Bachelor <laughs> at drama. Yeah, I mean, Tales from Suburbia, right? Well, I'm thinking of ending. Do you have anything else? I mean, I I I think we covered 
all the all the big things it's it's a game where you make stories with your friends and that might be the oldest human art came back from the hunt hey guys this crazy yeah. thing just happened this happened then my buddy chips in yeah and then this thing happened i'm like yeah i forgot that even happened you know what i mean bringing yeah. it back around what we do okay we'll talk to bye you guys, guys later bye